You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Norris. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post, and I am so excited to host this conversation about one of the giants in musical theater. Jonathan Larson was the creative mind behind Rent, a show that forever changed Broadway after its release in 1996. Sadly, Jonathan Larson never knew of his show's success. He died the morning of the first off-Broadway preview performance. He was only 35 years old. Tick, Tick, Boom is a musical that Jonathan wrote about a young man hoping to break in the world of musical theater. It has an uncanny resemblance to his own struggles, the struggles he experienced himself on the path toward creating that seminal play, Rent. I'm delighted today to be joined by the director of the film adaptation, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and the screenwriter, Stephen Levinson. Lynn, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I thrilled to be here. Film. I loved this film, and I loved during the pandemic that it felt like we were in a theater, um, experiencing theater all around, learning about theater, uh, watching him perform. I liked the way that it went back and forth between his performance and um, and what we see in sort of the backstory. And Stephen, I want to begin with you because you were approached about writing this film the night that you won a Tony Award. So big night for you. A lot of um, you know wonderful things raining down on your shoulders. Talk to us about that moment and what it meant to you to be approached about this film because I imagine that to do something about Jonathan Larson had to have special meaning. Yeah, well, um... That's, you know, my interpretation of events is slightly different. I was, um, I'd heard about, well, I'd, I'd, I knew that um, Lynn was directing an adaptation of Tick, Tick, Boom. And um, I, the second I heard that, I immediately threw my hand in the air and said, I, I would love to do this. I love this show. Um, I love Jonathan Larson. I, I'm one of the many people, uh, I know Lynn included, for whom Rent was, you know, the defining theatrical event of my youth. Um, and so for, for a few months, I had been sort of what I felt was lobbying pretty hard. Um, and, and then the night of the Tonys, I saw the producer, Julio, um, in the hotel lobby of the Carlisle Hotel, where there's a big Tony party. And actually, none of us could go upstairs to the party because it was too crowded. But there in the lobby, um, she said, you know, I, I would love you to, to write this movie. And I was like, you know, Oh, I, I would love nothing more than to write this movie. So there's a lesson in that to, you know, go for those things that you care about. You know, raise your hand. Don't wait for opportunity to come to you. Absolutely. Lynn, this is um, in some ways, it's a story about Jonathan Larson, but it, it, it also is in some ways your story. Um, he had such an impact on you. I heard that you saw Rent on your 17th birthday. And that it was a, a, a definitional moment for you. You saw through that what musical theater could could be. Um, and the John, the story of Jonathan Larson, in some ways, mirrors your own story. Could you unpack that for us? Absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I loved musicals. I think like most folks, I fell in love with musicals, not by seeing Broadway, because it's expensive to see Broadway, but by doing the school plays in school. And 
they always took place in some other land in some other time. You know, the closest we got was sort of Chorus Line and West Side Story, but even those are period pieces by the 90s. Um, and so I, you know, for my 17th birthday, my my uh, high school girlfriend, Meredith Somerville, got me tickets. We sat in the last row of the mezzanine of the Nederlander Theater. And I'd never seen a show that felt so contemporary, uh, that took place in my hometown, just a couple hundred blocks south, um, and and looked like the New York I lived in. It was the most diverse cast I'd ever seen on a stage. And that's the night I went from admiring and loving musicals to to thinking I could write one because it was obvious that Jonathan had written with love about his community and um, it felt it felt real and it felt uh, approachable. You, when creating the set for his his little teeny apartment with the shower in the kitchen and the bookshelves that are sagging and the music that you can see on the wall as I was watching that I remembered Lynn, a, a feature about you where you were talking about your own childhood bedroom. And I wondered in creating this set, if you were creating Jonathan's home, but if you also had your own life in mind. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's interesting. Um, first of all, Alex DiGirlando and his incredible team did a painstaking um, version of Jonathan's apartment. I think the only departure is the, the hallway's a little wider so we can fit cameras in it. <laughs> Um, but but other than that, it's the apartment. And again, there were so many times where it felt like Jonathan was giving us gifts. Um, Julie sent us this video of Jonathan with a camcorder, and it's this first person narrating all of the stuff on his shelves because he's scared there's going to be an electrical fire, and he's filming it for insurance purposes. Um, so as a result, we have the most detailed um, sort of look at his apartment from, from Jonathan himself. But it's interesting when you're making a movie, you have to make so many decisions um, that you can't help but sort of show yourself in the process of making those decisions. And I remember um, showing the first cut to one of my best friends, Kiara Hudes, with whom I wrote in the Heights. And they, they had that first shot of Jonathan cradling his keyboard in his bedroom. And she looked at me and said, Lynn, that's your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and it looked exactly like my bedroom with the futon on the floor and the keyboard, you know, within arm's reach uh, in my 20s. Um, and, and, and I had this sudden fear of, oh my God, this movie's so much more personal than I thought. Uh, because I remember thinking at every step, what would Jonathan Larson do? Let's get it right. But you can't help but sort of sweat into the recipe as you're making the meal. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's a beautiful image. I'll try not to think about that next time I cook. <laughs> <laughs> so you were guided by his camcorder, but you were also guided by his papers. Um, Stephen, you and Lynn went to the Library of Congress, where they keep Jonathan Larson's papers, and you were able to to swim through all of that. So at some point, someone went through everything in that tiny little department, tiny little apartment, and and actually cataloged it. What was that like, and what did you find? Well, that was uh, a really magical, incredibly special day um, at the Library of Congress, where you know um, we went with Jennifer Tepper, who is um, a musical theater historian, um, and uh, just knows everything about everything, but especially about Jonathan Larson. Um, and she was sort of our guide through the archive. Um, and we basically just went through and found everything we possibly could uh, on Tick, Tick, Boom and everything on Superbia, which is the show that Jonathan um, was writing before Tick, Tick, Boom that much of Tick, Tick, Boom focuses on. Mm -hmm. And we sort of madly took pictures of everything and made copies of everything. 
and tried to find the tricky thing with Tick, Tick, Boom is that it was um, John performed it in his lifetime, this solo show called Boho Days um, at times. And then sometimes it was called Tick, Tick, Boom. And he performed it a, a few times over the years, but the, it was never fully produced. It was never given a, a real production and it was certainly never published. And so there was no sort of official script um, or, or final script, authorized script. So what we were doing is trying to find every version that we could, every iteration that he had done. And then we went home with all of those and uh, sort of combed through them and tried to figure out the order in which they had been written. There were some clues of what year they had come in, but they weren't super well dated or anything. Um, and, uh, and trying to figure out, you know, the show evolved a lot as all shows do over, over time. And, you know, it's interesting that the way, as you were introducing the, the story, how it was sort of about a composer um, with eerie parallels to John's own life. And it's interesting because over the years, the show kind of bounced around between being super autobiographical and very overtly autobiographical, and then being much more fictionalized and much more sort of uh, about John, an everyman composer. Uh, and I think one of the decisions that that we made certainly early on was to say that actually this was going to be the story of Jonathan Larson and not everyman John, a musical theater composer. It was it was about Jonathan Larson in this specific moment of time um, with this specific musical superbia. Did that put more pressure on your shoulders when you decided to make this story about Jonathan Larson because he is, you know, he's so iconic? Um, did you feel like I gotta get I got I have to not only get this right, but I have to make sure that I'm showing the interior of his life um, in a way that the people who are closest to him will understand and the people who have grown to love him through his work will embrace. Absolutely. I mean, I, I sort of think our research came in two phases. There was there was kind of the Library of Congress, the reading, the the collating, the looking at documents. And then the second phase of research was getting to talk to his friends and family. And uh, Lynn and I got to speak to many of his friends and certainly Julie Larson, who was there from the beginning um, uh, in all ways. Um, and that was how we kind of helped to fill in the blanks of who this person was, because I do think John in writing his solo show was a little bit at pains to not make it super, uh, like his personality doesn't necessarily come through in it. Um, it. It comes through inevitably in the music, of course, but the little quirks, the little things, it was a 55 minute solo show. So it didn't have time to dig into the intricacies of his life. and and. And the amazing thing with film, of course, is that, as Lynn was saying, we are able to recreate his life uh, in such incredible detail. Um, and so to get those details from his friends and family was, 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 did, did, there was certainly a burden of it, of, of feeling like we better get this right, but, but they made it feel like a real joy to get to bring that back to life. And I, you know, in the ensemble, uh, we all need a friend like Michael you know, who will tell mm -hmm. us what we need to hear in the moment. We, we saw it in the introductory clip. Um, there's only one Jonathan Larson at a moment when he was ready to, to throw in the towel and head in another direction. We all need that, that person in our life. Lynn, because this is film, um, the stage is, you know, it seems where you are, I don't want to say most comfortable, but where, you know, we, we, we've gotten to know your work through stage, now increasingly through film. 
um, with Mary Poppins and Encanto, um, those of us who were singing it all day long, uh, along with the soundtrack. Um, so big ups on that. But what elements of stage directing did you employ in making this film? Well, that's so inter such an interesting question and a great question. I think for me, um, I knew I needed theater actors to populate this film. Um, from number one on the call sheet, Andrew Garfield, who you know I I fell in love with watching him in Angels in America uh, at the National Theater. You know he is a stage creature. We know him as a movie star. He's but he's a movie star who can do an eight-hour Tony Kushner play and never miss a performance. Um, to to Robin and and so I, I what I love about working with folks who. Who, who came up in theater is there's a real discipline there and there's also a real sense of joy and collaboration because um, the difference between theater acting and film acting is um, the director leaves <laughs> at a certain point mm -hmm. in theater and it's up to the actors to, to keep the show going, to continue to find uh, those moments on stage. And so to have basically an entire movie populated uh, with theater artists was was incredible because um, there was a real sense of collaboration. I think the biggest thing I brought was rehearsal. Um, and I also mm -hmm. learned that from working with Rob Marshall and Mary Poppins. He was a Broadway director and choreographer who transitioned to film and you rehearsed for three months uh, before any camera is rolling on you. And I couldn't afford to rehearse for three months, um, but we rehearsed as much as we could so that um, not only the dance sequences, but really just sort of continuing to workshop the show. We we did readings um, around a table for a year before uh, we started pre-production. Um, and again, I, I that, that was my way of kicking the tires of it as an evening. Um, and that's that's what I know how to do best. So wait, did he has a theater background, but does he have an, a background in musical theater? No. That, Did he have to the, learn that, how to? Yeah, he had to. Did he have he to... Had to learn? Yeah, and um, he had never sung. But what was exciting was when I sat down with him, I I basically asked. I said, "Can you sing?" And he said, "I've never done that professionally, um, but it's it's a part of me that I've always wanted to explore, and I've never had." The opportunity to do it um and then i knew we were fine because if andrew garfield wants to do something he figures out how to do it um and as we've seen time and time again and so my job was to provide him with time and resources and so um, i set him up with liz kaplan who is an incredible vocal guru uh here in new york who who really doesn't she doesn't teach you how to sing what she does is figure out what's blocking you from singing um yeah. I, i've worked for several times and um and she worked with him for for a year and he also had to learn to play piano i basically told him um you need to play just enough piano that i can pan from your hands to your face and sell that you're playing all the songs um because it drives me crazy when i see someone going like this and the music isn't matching what their shoulders are doing i'm yeah. a real snob about whether people are really playing music in movies um <laughs> and uh and he went and did the work and um and joyfully went about the work and i think i i was so shocked at how um, how ready he was to go and how game he was to go again and again and again. It was really, um, it was really thrilling to watch him sort of come into that power. Well, you know, speaking of coming into that power, let's take a look at that. We have a clip from 3090. Right. 
screenplay <laughs> yeah, you do you want to cheer or you want to stand up and apply <laughs> in the screenplay for the Stephen, you capture the pressure that writers face and you also beautifully capture something that is referred to in the title the notion that he was running out of time um that that something was was on his back and we see that in the story of his friends who are dying of aids but also this sense that i i'm, I'm about to be 30 that it's all going to be over do you think that Jonathan, in some sense, had an an idea that 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 was happening um, to him, or or also had an idea that his that his work would be regarded in this way? Well, it's so interesting because you know, it, I've I've said it before. It feels like we came up with the title "Tick Tick Boom" to be ironic. You know what I mean? After the mm -hmm. fact, like oh, wouldn't it be interesting if this young composer knew he was running out of time? But we didn't come up with any of that. None of that is from us. That's all John. John wrote a show called Tick, Tick, Boom. John is the one who was obsessed with this idea of running out of time. And we, we just put that on screen. So clearly that he did feel that. Um, and I've, I've thought a lot about it. And and the temptation, I think, is to say, oh, there, he did have some kind of prescience. He did have some sense that that his time here was limited. And, and I think that what I've come around to think more is that that he knew that all of us have limited time. Uh, and, and he was just more acutely aware of that than most of us would like to be. He knew that um, that all of us have, have finite amounts of time and, and have things that we want to accomplish. And he felt this urgency and this pressure to get it out into the world. And something that, that Lynn uh, said from the beginning about John that really stuck with me, um, that, that we we constantly went back to is that that John was not he did not have imposter syndrome as many artists do he did not have this sense of maybe I'm not good enough that was never his problem his problem was what if the world doesn't recognize what I have what if I put it out there and they don't see how special it is and what if I don't have enough time to get it all out there um, and that felt, I think, to both of us from the beginning, like an interesting kind of artist story because it's different than the ones that that we're used to hearing. Um, but I, I do think it's the you know, Lynn and I from the beginning were very keen to get that sense of of the clock ticking um, to make that feel very visceral and to make that in a way that you can do on film, you can feel like you're inside of a character's head and inside of this conundrum of the clock ticking and is he going to be able to get this story out into the world fast enough yeah he he had vulnerability but there's this wonderful moment where the um director who's who's helping fund the workshop kind of leans in and says okay you were right and he doesn't he just says i know <laughs> of course yeah. i was right i i i understand what i bring 
I want to ask you also about the diner scene, which is so interesting because it's, it's built around a song called Sunday, which um, seems like it's an homage to Stephen Sondheim and Sunday in the Park with George. And it is in this rendering an homage to Jonathan Larson, because as you're watching it, you're like, oh, there's Cheetah Rivera. And there's I mean, it seems like every major person in musical theater of the last uh, 25 years shows up somewhere in in this scene. Let's take a listen. On an island into What do you think he would have thought of that scene with that many people honoring him in, in such a magnificent way? Oh, I hope he's doing backflips. Um, that's, that's the, <laughs> that was, that was the hope the, the, you know, the, the sort of irony is he wrote this homage to one of the great group numbers at the end of act one and he only ever sang it as a one-man song uh and we realized we had an opportunity to make the choir of jonathan larson's dreams um and if one of his dreams is changing the landscape of musical theater which he did but didn't live to see we could also populate it with those shows that are influenced by his work. So that's why, you know, Beth Malone is there representing Fun Home. And I have two of my Skylar sisters uh, in there. And there are his Rent um, original cast members who, some of whom he hasn't met yet uh, in the timeline of this film. But it's a galaxy brain moment for him. And I, I'm so glad you, you, you showed it from that moment because one of the other touches that I love that really happened later in the process uh, was that final touch of the marquee of of the the Moondance Diner turning into a marquee uh, and saying music and lyrics by Jonathan Larson in his handwriting. I think about how much he loved Sondheim and didn't live to see uh, a Broadway theater renamed the Stephen Sondheim where, you know, there's his name in Sondheim's handwriting. So I wanted to do the same uh, for John in the, in the last uh, brushstroke of the sequence. And he didn't see his name in lights like that. So there was, yeah. you know, that beautiful moment. You know, I, there's a scene where he has, he always carried a notebook with him and he was always scribbling in that. And you use that beautifully because you see when he's having kind of the thought bubble, it's not like a thought bubble, but it's the words populating the back of the screen in his handwriting from his notebooks. And I, I wondered if we would see the same genius today if he was not just writing in notebooks, but if he was participating in social media in some ways, if, if there wasn't the outlet that we all have, you know, where we're always writing about what we think, showing what we think on, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter. And because of, there wasn't that outlet, all of that was like a pressure cooker. It just sort of stayed inside his notebooks and stayed inside his brain. Yeah, well, it's, I'm so glad you brought up those questions and his scribblings because um, when we went to the Library of Congress, we, we talked to Mark Eden Horwitz, who curates his papers, and he, he, he gave us an insight that we, we ended up using in the film, which is that Jonathan writes differently. Like he writes differently than I write. He would ask himself questions 
questions. A lot of his notebooks really were populated with questions, the most famous of which is, how do you measure a year? And there's a piece of paper that says, 52 weeks, 365 days, and then circled 525,600 minutes. And I, it was such a beautiful insight because the last song of his piece, every lyric is a question. And that's really kind of exactly where Jonathan Larson is at the end of this film. He's asking questions and he's writing his way towards the next insight. Um, it, it's it, he in processing the the fact that no one wanted to produce superbia. He 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 created this incredible portrait of the artist at a crossroads. Go ahead, Stephen. Oh, I was just going to say it is interesting the social media question and and the fact that. All of these things, Superbia took eight years, you know, the, the show that he was working on. And Tick, Tick, Boom, he worked on for, I don't know, four or five years, rents the same. And these things take time. Uh, and it is interesting mm -hmm. in a culture where we're expected to just keep sort of producing ideas and content and like trying to find that time is is difficult. And um, so predicted social media, uh, you know, in yeah, the plot of Superbia. He talks about these things called media transmitters that that break on purpose so that you buy new ones um, and that there would be the have nots who watch the, the super rich do things, which is the best description of Instagram I've ever heard. And he wrote in <laughs> So these films, these, 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 this film took a long time. He workshopped it for a year. His productions took a long time, eight years, four years. Um, and and we see that he was struggling with this and didn't know if, if he could if he could stick with it. We have a question from Anne in Minnesota, and she asked, um, "Have either of you ever thought about throwing it in? Have ever thought about quitting? And what is you know what keeps you going?" Well, I mean, it, this sounds hyperbolic, and it sort of is, but it's like yes, every day. You know, I mean, I think that. Uh, I think not, not quite, but like that's, I think what you learn, or I've certainly learned as a writer, is that those insecurities, those fears, that sense of, I just can't do it this time, that never goes away. Because, um, you know, I think, especially when I was a young writer, I had a feeling of, well, once I have some success, then I'll feel set, and then I'll know how to do this and keep doing this. But, but as a writer, you always go back to the blank page. You know, that's yeah. always there for you. And, and I think I, I, I find that comforting in, in some ways because we all have it. You know, there is no writer. You think of Sondheim, you think of Jonathan Larson. Just because they made incredible things doesn't mean that they didn't wake up the next day and go back to that blank page and back to those same questions and back to that same uh, yeah. burning need to, to express themselves and, and trying to figure out the form in which to do it. I also think that um, a, a huge advantage I had was seeing this show when I was 21 years old. I was a senior in college when I saw the posthumous off-Broadway production of Rent that was beautifully directed by Scott Schwartz and starring uh, young Raul Esparza, Jerry Dixon, and Amy Spanger. And what the show asks you, that 90-minute that show, is are you okay with chasing your passion if the world doesn't notice while you're alive? Um, that's a tough question when you're 21 and you're a theater major uh, and and it's the field you want to go into. And I sat with it for a long time. I, I remember stumbling out of that theater because of the questions the show asked of me, but it also clarified my resolve. 
I remember thinking if I, you know, have to keep teaching or I have to wait tables to, to get to do this, um, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that trade-off if I get to spend my time making this stuff. So um, seeing the show um, really kind of strengthened my resolve and also told me it was gonna be hard, um, but but also strengthened my resolve to see this as a calling, not as a, as a meal ticket, that, that it probably wouldn't be. And there's that wonderful, you know, all of the, the um, supporting cast, every single one of them made the most with their time, even if it was limited. So when Judith Light, as Rosa, his agent, tells him, honey, you just got to sit down and start writing again. And you do it over and over and over again, because that's what a writer does. And as a writer myself, someone who's trying to finish a book, that really, that really spoke to me. I have loved talking to both of you. I am so sorry that we didn't have time to talk about we don't talk about bruno because we could do a whole conversation uh about that i'd love to know why you you um your thoughts about why that song in particular has has struck a chord and we should say that it's dethroned let it go as the biggest billboard hit from a disney movie ever ever so um you're raising your eyebrows as if you didn't know that I have a feeling <laughs> I, you probably did know that hearing it i, I still don't believe it um and <laughs> But but I think it's because we've been locked up and that song really resonates. You know, we've been locked up with our families and um, I think everyone has the experience of the stories you can tell at the dinner table and the stories you can't tell in front of mom or abuelo mm-hmm. um, or your children. Um, and so there is um, there's there's something that's resonating with with families. It's I, I'm just amazed an ensemble number uh, has done this. Ensemble numbers are always my favorite and they never get love like this. So I'm really grateful and thrilled. Well, thank you so much for putting this film into the world that celebrates uh, an iconic a giant of the theater, but also celebrates friendship and perseverance and creativity. We need films like this. So thank you very much, Stephen Lynn. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Michelle. Big fan. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.